Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us in this Catholic Truth Podcast special edition. We want to welcome Patrick Madrid. Today, we are welcoming Patrick Madrid, who is a professional, I would even say expert Catholic apologist. He's also a speaker and author, and he hosts a radio show called The Patrick Madrid Show. And it's three hours every single day on Relevant Radio. So if you love this uh, podcast, if you love this interview, check out his Patrick Madrid radio show. And every Everything Patrick Madrid speaks on is great. He's incredibly informed, and he's the author of many books, including, I put a couple up here, Where Is That Found in the Bible? Where Is That Found in Tradition? I don't know if you guys can see it, but we also have uh, Pope Fiction, Search and Rescue, and I have been doing apologetics for over 20 years. I've read countless books, and I can tell you as a professional apologist that Patrick Madrid's books are of the best there is. If you want to learn apologetics, he's one of the top uh, apologists, in my opinion, and his books are excellent. If you're even remotely serious about bringing friends and family back to the Catholic Church, I would highly recommend his book, Search and Rescue. So thank you for joining us on this show, Patrick. You're welcome, and thanks for the kind introduction, Brian. I appreciate it. You're welcome. And today, uh, we're going to be speaking on Sola Scriptura and the Bible alone. And I know a long time ago, you were on a eight hour debate. Uh, it was three Catholic Protestant, uh, three Catholic apologists and three Protestant apologists. And you debated four hours on Sola Fide, faith alone, and, uh, four hours on Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone. And, uh, it was a great debate. And, uh, just off the cuff, if I'm not mistaken, it was at a mega church. And after the debate, is it true that I, I think I remember hearing this somewhere that the daughter of the mega church pastor ended up converting to Catholicism? Kind, kind of, sort of, not exactly that. Um, the background is, Brian, that I was invited by Michael Horton to go on his radio program uh, in LA. This is back in probably late 94. And so I was on as the Catholic guest. And there were three Protestants there. So Michael Horton, Rod Rosenblatt, who's a Lutheran. And I forget who the third guy was. I think he was a Calvinist. And so we spent the, the hour, or maybe it was two hours, I forget, uh, kind of discussing and debating our relative perspectives on justification. And so apparently the show went over very well. and They got a lot of positive feedback. So Michael got in touch and asked if I would be willing to uh, do a three-on-three debate in front of a live audience. And so I chose a couple other guys to, to be on my team. And then he chose a couple of guys to be on his team. And uh, so the debate was held at uh, Lake Avenue. I think it was Lake Avenue church in Pasadena. It was a mega church and is um, I think it seats something like 2000 people. It's quite large. And so we did the debate the first night we debated Sola Scriptura. And uh, I think it was about four hours. I mean, it was at least, three hours and probably closer to four. And then the second evening we debated uh, justification by faith alone. And at the end of the second debate, I guess the second debate was during the daytime. At the end of the second debate, a young woman came up to my wife and me in the parking lot as we were heading to the car. And she introduced herself as the daughter, not of the pastor of the church, but she, her father was on the board of directors for the, uh, the Westminster Seminary in Southern California, where one of the Protestant debaters was the president. So her father was on the board of directors for that Protestant seminary. And she said that she had come to the debate expecting to see the Catholic position destroyed. And she even brought some of her Catholic friends so that they would see the Catholic position destroyed. And she said that, in fact, it was so... Um, 
mind-blowing for her that she was really worried that maybe she might have to become Catholic. Uh, so we stayed in touch. Her name is Annie. And in, in due time, she actually did become Catholic. And uh, so we stayed in touch. And what she tells me from time to time, she'll say, oh, by the way, I, I met a Baptist minister and uh, he was telling me why the Catholic Church is wrong. So I gave him a copy of those CDs and now he's an RCIA. Wow. So she she has used the recordings of that debate to convert people to the faith, which is uh, a nice little icing on the cake, if you ask me. Wow. And we have those recordings here at Catholic Truth. So um in our library. So I'm going to actually post that uh, link to the to the uh, CDs in the description section of this video, along with your uh, your website, which has your books and your blog and everything else. So I'll, I'll tell people where to find you. Um, Patrick, we're going to be discussing today Sola Scriptura and um, one of your expertise and the Bible alone. And before we're going to get into specific passages that Protestants use to prove Sola Scriptura, but then we're going to show why they don't hold up and why they are uh, incorrect, actually. But before we do, can you uh, give our listeners, our audience members, uh, just a brief overview of what Sola Scriptura is and why um, it's untenable? Yes, well, Sola Scriptura as a systematic approach to Scripture really kind of emerges during the time of the Protestant Revolt, the Protestant uh, uh, Reformation, the Protestant Revolution. There are different ways of describing it. And it arose in a thematic way with Martin Luther. And it was his appeal to Scripture alone over against the Catholic Church's authority. And he, he taught, and others did shortly after he was uh, became prominent, so people like John Calvin, Earl Zwingli, and others, the idea that Scripture is sufficient in itself for all doctrinal issues that Christians need to know in order to be Christian. Now, each of the different branches of the Protestant Reformation, the Lutheran branch, the Reformed branch under John Calvin, and the Anabaptist branch, each in their own way appealed to this principle of Scripture alone, but they did so in slightly different ways. So it is, it, you can see that there is a kind of, I would argue, a sort of lip service that's paid to the church, although they don't identify the church as the Catholic Church. They just think of it as this historical entity that has existed uh, down through the centuries that is not coincident with the Catholic Church. But in any case, they would say that the church has authority, and they would say that the church fathers have a kind of authority. They would respect the authority of the councils. But ultimately, the thesis is that scripture is in itself sufficient, formally so, for all matters pertaining to doctrine. So that is understood in a in somewhat different ways, it's more nuanced and more uh, maybe a bit broader in the case of many Calvinists and some Lutherans. It's a lot less so in the case of Baptists and those non-denominational groups that have been largely uh, permeated with Baptist theology. That's a much more by the book only and a lot less room for things like councils and the church fathers. Right. So this is, as you know, a, a notion that is nowhere taught in the Bible. Jesus did not teach Sola Scriptura. The apostles did not teach Sola Scriptura. For that matter, it wasn't taught in the centuries before the time of Christ in the uh, among the Israelites. And it certainly was not what the early church taught. And it's a novelty, quite frankly, mm -hmm. that I would argue it, it is it fits the description of what Jesus condemned in Matthew chapter 15, 
about traditions of men which nullify the word of God. The great irony of Sola Scriptura is that not only is it not biblical, but it, it's something that arose as a, an idea in the minds of the men of the Reformation, and it actually subverts the true authority of the word of God in scripture, as we'll discover as we proceed in this conversation. Yeah, and, and this one, we're going to be giving some of those verses in a second, but I just want to say, uh, I just want to add to that, say I've seen, especially on YouTube and uh, my podcast and our comment section, and just discussing with um, more modern Protestants, mostly non-denominationals, where guess, you know, there's as many theologies as there are heads, as Martin Luther once said, that still holds true. Um, but many people are just saying, oh, well, the Bible's all you need. You don't even need tradition. You don't even need uh, doctrines. You don't need anything. You just need the Bible. You just need the Bible. And so they've even simplified it uh, a lot more in some way. So there, it seems like there's a lot of different views on it now. But a lot of people, no matter where they're at, they seem to give a lot of the same biblical verses to try to prove the Bible alone. Uh, we're going to give some of them here. Uh, I'm going to read them to you and uh, just kind of, maybe you can talk about, you know, why Protestants believe that it proves Sola Scriptura and then why it actually doesn't. Is, does that sound good? Sure. All right. Uh, the first one uh, comes from Revelation 22, 18 and 19. And it says, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life. Why do Protestants use that verse? And what do they think it, um, it, what do they think it does for them? Well, the misunderstanding there is when they say, when they quote that passage in Revelation 22, uh, they think that the phrase, this book means this book, this book, the Bible. It does not mean that. St. John there is referring to this book, <laughs> the book of Revelation. That's what he's referring to. And he's warning against tampering with what he wrote there. Some people might want to remove a few things or embellish it. So he's warning against that. But it certainly does not teach Sola Scriptura, first of all, because he's not referring to all of Scripture. And secondly, because you can demonstrate by going to passages uh, such as in Deuteronomy chapter 4, where Moses makes very much the same statement. If you know, don't add anything to what I have written here in this book. And obviously all Protestants and all Catholics would accept all the books that came after the book of Deuteronomy. So there's no reason to, to, to apply a different standard there than we would to the book of Revelation. The author was clearly saying, don't tamper with this particular writing of mine. And Moses had no concept of the Bible as a uh, a book filled with 73 in the in the case of the catholic bible 73 inspired books of scripture uh for that matter when saint john wrote the apocalypse the canon had not yet been definitively closed that would happen centuries later when the church the catholic church would uh make that decision not because the catholic church claims to have inspired those books second timothy 316 says god inspired all of these books but it was in and through the catholic church that that revelation was given uh, so, no, Revelation uh, does not in any sense demonstrate adding anything uh, beyond that. It's a warning not to tamper with, to subtract or to add to the book of Revelation. Yeah, because it was a direct um, revelation from God. So how could we add to it or take away from it, right? Right. Although uh, some people try. There are there are <laughs> people who try to tamper with with Scripture. So uh, it's a good warning, but it doesn't it doesn't in any sense mean 
that scripture alone is what he's referring to. Thank you. And you just mentioned uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. Why don't we tackle those next? Um, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, All scripture is inspired um, by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Um, now, this is probably the most quoted verse to try to prove sola scriptura. Uh, why do Protestants, what, what do Protestants say about it, and why is it incorrect? Well, it's, for, let's start with why is it the most quoted, and the reason is because once a Protestant starts looking for the teaching of sola scriptura in the Bible, and he realizes he can't find it anywhere, the closest thing he can come to that is the passage that, that you just quoted, which says that scripture is useful or necessary for these different things. And by way of uh, context, it's referring to Scripture's necessity to equip the man of God, but the, it, it says, or it implies that the man of God is actually the one who is sufficient. So it doesn't even really modify Scripture. Now, I recall in one debate that I did, uh, the, my debate opponent tried to make the analogy of a bike shop, and he said that the bike shop is, is like Scripture. It will supply everything that the rider needs, the bicycle, the tire pump, the water bottle, the helmet, all of those things. So it's sufficient to provide everything that's necessary. And I responded by saying, well, that's true. But what if the person doesn't know how to ride a bike? What if he doesn't know the local geography and he could easily get lost? What if he doesn't have the, um, you know, the wherewithal you know, strength-wise to get from point A to point B on a bike? So he was trying to make the case that the bike shop analogy was um, a way of looking at scripture that everything you need is there and you really don't need anything else. And so I brought that up and then his rejoinder to that was, aha, but yes, but it refers here to the man of God. The man of God can do these things. And I said, yeah, but who's the man of God? And I pointed out that the um, Orthodox Presbyterian Church in which we were debating that evening uh, would not even consider him, my debate opponent, as a suitable candidate for ordination over the issue of infant baptism, because that church, based upon scripture, baptizes infants. And he, uh, this particular opponent, happened to be Reformed Baptist, and he's against the baptism of infants. So I said, so which of you is the, the man of God, you or the pastor of this church? And what about the Lutheran pastor who's in the front row? And what about the other various non-denominational ministers, each of whom, if you dug far enough, you'd find disagree with you my debate opponent, on matters from the Bible, and they would interpret the Bible differently. So how does that save your man of God theory? It really doesn't. Uh, I don't recall that, that he had any um, response to that. I don't remember. I'd have to go back and listen, but I don't think he really responded to it. But in addition to that, you can simply point out the fact that 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which every Catholic should say amen to, as we would to anything else in Scripture, properly understood, it does say that scripture is necessary, but it doesn't say that it's sufficient. And the way to prove that is to say the only way that you can know what scripture is, is the canon that tells us which books belong in scripture. And by virtue of that, the inclusion of those, let's just say for the Catholic Bible, 73 books, that excludes everything else. That excludes the Book of Mormon. It excludes my books. It excludes all other writings. Only those that are inspired by God are present in the canon. But the Bible nowhere tells you what the canon is. 
So the very claim to go by scripture alone is self-refuting because in order to make that claim, you have to be able to say, well, I go by the Bible alone. Well, what books are in the Bible? Well, these books are in the Bible. Well, how do you know these books are in the Bible when the Bible doesn't tell you that? There's no inspired table of contents, in other words. So that is a revelation from God that Christians need, but it does not come to us through the Bible. So we have to look to the church in and through which God revealed the canon of scripture. He inspired these books, not the church. We don't make that claim. But he did not reveal the list of which books belong in scripture itself. So that's one of the most central incoherencies in the Sola Scriptura belief. I mean, it just, it does not hold up. It's not taught in the Bible, etc. And furthermore, in order for it to be logically coherent and biblically consistent, you would not only have to find the Bible teaching that doctrine. So if somebody says, I will only accept a doctrine that I find in scripture. Okay, well, where's that doctrine that you only accept doctrines that are found in scripture? It's not there. And even if it did say that, it's still self-refuting because the Bible doesn't tell us which books belong in the Bible. So the canon issue is central to any adequate apologetics discussion on this topic. Now, uh, Protestants might, you know, rejoin or something like, um, but it says that scripture makes the man complete for every good work. So if scripture makes the man complete, what else do you need? Isn't that all you need? Yeah, well, on the surface, you know, if you just had recourse to that one passage, you know, it might be, uh, it might be somewhat plausible. Uh, but all you have to do is to quote James chapter one, verse four, which says, let endurance or steadfastness uh, have full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So here again, if you apply the same logic, James chapter one, verse four is far more strong in saying that as long as you have endurance, um, that you don't need anything else. Would that mean you don't need the Bible? So where it says here that you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, which is language even stronger than what it says about the man of God in 2 Timothy 3, what are we to do here? So if, if the Bible here says perseverance will make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, I guess I don't need the Bible. I guess I don't need faith. I guess I don't need prayer um, because as long as I have perseverance, I'm lacking in nothing. And that, of course, is not what it means. It, it would be taking that passage in isolation and making it say something that it doesn't really mean. Perseverance is important, but ultimately you need more than just perseverance. You need scripture, you need faith, you need prayer, etc. And so the same rule applies in 2 Timothy 3.16. It is being taken in isolation and made to, to say something it's not really saying. It's not saying scripture is sufficient. And we've demonstrated that even just in the last few minutes. But I would encourage Catholics to reference James chapter 1, verse 4 as a way to make that point. Yeah, and I think it's important that um, Protestants and Catholics both know that the word there doesn't, like you just said, it doesn't say sufficient. It says helpful or profitable. Um, so going back to the bike example, if, if you want to learn to ride a bike, it's good. It's helpful to go to the bike shop and buy a bike. And to receive everything there that you need, like a water bottle, but that's not all you need. It's also helpful to go learn and ride the bike. It's also helpful to get a map and some other things as well and to make sure you eat enough. And, you know, it's, it's not all you need. So the word helpful, I, I don't think, I think when Protestants quote that to me, 
they just make it sufficient. But the word sufficient isn't actually there. And I think that's a problem. Um, in, in there are two ways. Greek words uh, that are that are there. And these words came up in that debate that I referenced earlier. Um, uh, exartismenos and artios. And those two words uh, that have to do with scripture's capability of equipping the man of God, um, they are they are not referring to the sufficiency of scripture in itself, but rather the importance and the ability of scripture to make fit the man of God. Uh, so even just a plain reading of the passage, if, if you're honest, you see that it's not saying anything about sufficiency, but importance and the centrality of the Bible to do that. Which we agree. Scriptures are important. And uh, it is. Um, and that's that kind of points to the irony, Brian, is that in their their well-intentioned desire to follow scripture. And I appreciate that on the part of yeah. Protestants. It's yep. good. But it actually at, winds up subverting the Bible's authentic authority because the the, the authority of the Holy Bible is the, the, the Bible itself reveals to us that it is the scripture and tradition in the church. And the problem that arose at the Reformation, and I believe has only been exacerbated in the century since then, is that this this effort to take scripture alone actually removes it from its natural habitat and without recourse to tradition to understand if you have authentically understood the meaning of scripture after all there are countless different disagreements on the part of protestants who are reading the same scripture but they come up with in some cases wildly different conclusions as, as to what scripture means but it's also within the context of the church that has the authority to determine the proper interpretation of scripture and what Sola Scriptura has actually done, another irony here, is that through the Protestant Reformation, it has turned the Bible into a Rubik's Cube, where it's every man for himself, and he sits down with the Bible and he tries to figure it out, and some people insist that children should be baptized, some say no, some say baptism regenerates, some say no, uh, some say divorce and remarriage is okay in the case of, say, adultery, some say no. Um, there, there are countless examples of where this mere appeal to the authority of Scripture doesn't result in unity or a cohesion of belief among those who follow Jesus, but it actually has led to the splintering and hiving off into countless different sub-denominations and non-denominational denominations, all because this claim that the Bible is sufficient, it leads nowhere. It, 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 it leads to every man for himself which is yeah. part of the great tragedy of the Protestant Reformation. It, it inflicted such a grievous wound on the unity of the church. We're still reeling from that wound today. That's a great point, Patrick. And um, it, before we get to the next verse, I just want to say briefly that uh, I thought that was one of the most powerful points in that eight-hour debate that you made. Um, I mean, the Protestants and Catholics were both going at it. All of them were very educated, very well-educated. And uh, but the Protestants were starting to uh, get back on their heels a little bit and uh, being pushed back. And so they they came up with this thing. Well, you know what? We, we all agree on the basics. You know, you say we all agree on the essentials. Yes, on the essentials. And you immediately said that is not true. You 
are a Calvinist and you don't believe in infant baptism, but you are a Lutheran who believes not only in infant baptism, but that baptism regenerates you and is necessary for salvation. And so those are two drastically different things. Which is it? And I don't remember them having an answer for it. It was kind of like a hush came over the crowd. It was like, wow. <laughs> And, I remember uh, that. And I remember, uh, I don't know if it's in a, that exact same spot. By the way, the debate is called What Still Divides Us. Thank you. And uh, that's available as a digital download at my website, patrickmadrid.com, for those who are interested. Um, but but what I remember, in addition to that moment, was the moment where uh, Robert Godfrey, who was the thoroughgoing Calvinist of the group. So you had Robert Godfrey, who was the president of the Protestant seminary I mentioned, Westminster in California. Rod Rosenblatt was the thoroughgoing Lutheran, and then Michael Horton at the time, I don't know if he's since changed denominations, but at the time he was uh, in, what was it, a, a um, uh, it was a Calvinist Presbyterian or, or Calvinist um, Episcopalian or something. It was a, a denomination I had not heard of before. <laughs> so he was somewhat, maybe a bit slightly different from his Calvinist counterpart. But in any case, uh, Bob Godfrey, at one point in his remarks, he says, the Bible teaches Calvinism. And so I, I responded by saying, well, does your Lutheran counterpart, Rod Rosenblatt, does he believe the Bible teaches uh, Calvinism? And the, and the whole crowd started laughing because they realized the <laughs> absurdity of that claim. Uh, Calvinists think that the Bible teaches Calvinism. Uh, Lutherans don't and Baptists don't. So uh, even there in itself, in the debate on Sola Scriptura, Oddly enough, the debaters themselves demonstrated that it, it, it's a paper tiger. It doesn't really work. Demonstrated your point perfectly. And I remember that being in a Protestant church and even the whole church laughing at that point. I was like, wow, that's okay. Um, why don't we move on to the next verse? Um, it comes from Matthew 4, 4, Patrick, and it says this. But Jesus answered them, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so Protestants will always say to me, you know, Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written. And he always referred to scripture. And so therefore, that's our authority and our cue that we should always appeal to scripture. What would you say to that, Patrick? Well, there are many things you could say. First of all, is consider the context. Jesus was speaking to Jews whose sole focus was the law and the prophets. I mean, that they lived and breathed that. And so he he rightfully told them to to look at these passages that demonstrated the truth of what he was saying. Uh, one could surmise that if Jesus had come first to the Gentiles, he would not have said that because the Gentiles wouldn't have had any consideration for the, the Jewish Bible. And so it, it would not have done them much good for him to say, it is written because they'll say it's written where you see so context is everything and that would explain why jesus emphasizes that to the jews but i would also point out that jesus uh in matthew chapter 23 he invokes an unwritten tradition when just before he is uh about to excoriate the scribes and pharisees uh and you know they're dead men's bone or white white and sepulchers full of dead men's bones they're brood of vipers uh blind guides etc just before that jesus says you see that the this, this Pharisees have taken their seat on the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. Now, that chair of Moses that Jesus invokes as, as a symbol of authority is nowhere found in the Old Testament. It was an oral tradition among the rabbis that in the synagogue, 
beginning with Moses, it seems, that he would sit in a stone chair and the rabbi would sit in a stone chair, which was symbolic of his authority to teach from that chair. It actually, uh, it has a foundation, you might say, in the Catholic Church's teaching of ex cathedra, which is the Latin phrase for from the chair. And it's drawn from this earlier pre-Christian tradition that the chair is the symbol or a symbol of that rabbinic authority. So there we see Jesus not going by scripture alone. In fact, he enjoins this upon his apostles by an appeal to an unwritten tradition. We see also St. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. He specifically says, don't go by scripture alone, where he says, I urge you, brothers, to stand firm and hold fast to the traditions just as you received them from us, either by an oral statement or by a letter of ours. So he's saying, don't go by one or the other, go by both, stand firm and hold fast to both. And so this is another one of those ironies is that there are any number of places in scripture, which if we consider them and what Jesus says in Matthew chapter four, we realize he's not saying go by scripture alone. Uh, as St. Paul said, we're to accept the gospel as it's transmitted to us. Part of it is transmitted or it's transmitted in a certain way through what is written. It's also transmitted in the oral statements, as he says. So this that's one of the passages I think every Catholic should be familiar with, so that when somebody says, I go by the Bible alone, you should say, well, why, when the Bible says not to, in Second <laughs> Thessalonians 2.15. Yeah, it always amazes me that the majority of what Jesus said and spoke and taught was by his own authority. It wasn't taken it, it is written it is yeah sure sometimes he did quote scripture but many times he didn't and uh to me that that doesn't prove sola scriptura um another another uh verse comes from acts 17 11 through 12 this is the uh case of the bereans and it says this it says the brethren immediately sent paul and silas away by night to berea and when they arrived they went into a jewish synagogue now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so Protestants will often say, see, in the Bible, they, people searched the scriptures daily to see if things were true. So that's what we have to do. We have to look into the Bible to say to see if the things are true. That's where we get our doctrines from. Does that does that, does that sound like the Protestant position? And what would you yeah, say the problem I mean, with that is? There's more that could be said, obviously, for the sake of the Protestant case. Sure. Um, but because we don't want to engage in a, you know, a straw man argument. Exactly. But, but even, even with whatever embellishments might be brought to bear on that passage, first of all, it's not a command. Uh, it's, it's a declaration. So he's not saying to them, search the scriptures. He's saying, you search the scriptures and you see that the things that I'm telling you are correct. So that's an important little subnote there that it's not a an exhortation. Rather, it's a declaration that this is what they're doing. But it makes perfect sense in context because there he's speaking to Jews who not only have access to the Holy Bible, but they're permeated. Their lives are permeated in that. Their prayer, their thought process is permeated by the Bible. So naturally... He's going to to want them to do that. And it was good that they did that. And we should do the same thing, too. Uh, far be it for me to suggest that Catholics or any Christian should not turn to the Bible first to see what, you know, what it teaches. But we always have to subject our personal interpretations to the authority of the church. And this is where, of course, sacred tradition comes in. It's not the traditions of men that are condemned in Matthew 7 and 
or Matthew 15 and Mark chapter 7, but rather these are the teachings that come from God himself, or as St. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, the teachings that you receive from us either by an oral statement or by a letter of ours. Now you notice by way of juxtaposition here that although this is what was said in the case of the Bereans, you'll notice that that's not what St. Paul did when he went to the Areopagus in the book of Acts, and he was in Athens preaching to Gentiles. He doesn't say, search the scriptures. They would have said, what scripture? What are you talking about? So he uses a different approach with them as he as he's walking along, and he he's noticing these various shrines to different gods, and he comes across the one that's dedicated to the unknown god, and he says, men of Athens, I see that in everything you are very religious. And he proceeds to tell them how this unknown God, or at least unknown to them, he's there to tell them who that God really is. He doesn't quote the Bible. He doesn't refer them to the Old Testament because for them, that would have been pointless. So this is another danger when people are frantically searching for something, anything that will try to prop up their, their view of Sola Scriptura. Uh, in the case of uh, the Bereans, that won't help them either, because we see there too that it's it's an appeal to the authority that the, that the Jews recognized, but that's not a universal uh, exhortation, as we saw in the case of Mars Hill, the Areopagus. Would you say that uh, Protestants or non-Catholics in general uh, mistake? Uh, mistakenly think that the Bereans were Christians and were searching the Christian scriptures and were being good Christians. Have you, have you heard that? Or do, do you think that they realized that they were actually Jews? That's a good question. I can't speak for anybody other than myself. I don't recall hearing a Protestant assert that they were Christians, but I have definitely encountered many Protestants who see in that episode a model or a paradigm for what they regard Christians, uh, what they think Christians should do. Uh, so I think it's, it's, there's a transference. Um, I'm not aware of people saying those Bereans were Christians, but rather that's what Christians should do. We should be like the Bereans. In fact, there, there are a lot of Baptist churches, you know, the Berean Baptist church yeah. of, you know, dismal, dismal seepage, Illinois, or wherever it may be. So the Bereans are, are looked at as a kind of paradigm, but it's, it's not really what they think it is if they're trying to press the Bereans into service uh, for Sola Scriptura. Yeah, and to me, actually, this kind of this passage kind of refutes actually Sola Scriptura because it said that they were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. But why? Because Paul argued with them from the Scriptures too, the Bible says, every day for like three weeks. And at the end of three weeks, the Jews in Thessalonica rejected Paul based on what he was showing them in the Scriptures. And based on that, they said, no, we we're, we looked in the Scriptures, we searched the Scriptures, but we don't agree with you in your interpretation. So, uh, And so I would say that, you know, they're more noble-minded because they were more open to Paul, they were more open to Christ, but it it actually disproves Sola Scriptura because people rejected him based off of it. Yeah, on the basis of Scripture. Yeah, that's that's an important point to bring up. And furthermore, you'll notice that the Bereans are praised because they accepted Paul's interpretation of Scripture. That's where we get into the question of sacred tradition, which is the interpretive key. What does this passage mean? You know, and if we if we can't ascertain the authentic meaning of a given passage, then it, it's just words on the paper for us. And frankly, that's what the Bible has become for the Protestant world. Sadly, it, it's they don't see it that way, but 
in effect, what it becomes is whatever the minister, however he interprets it, that's what we're going to go with. And if you disagree with his interpretation, then you're free to go start your own church <laughs> where you teach your interpretation. Yep. And that has been the sad legacy of the Protestant Reformation ever since then. I'll give you an example if we have time. I know we don't sure. have unlimited time here, but go ahead. Um, I was um, I was speaking at a parish in the San Diego area. This is many years ago, and uh, I was giving a talk on I think Marian teachings, if I recall. And uh, two fellows, both of whom were Calvinists, they asked me after the event was over if they could sit down with me at a local coffee shop and point out to me where I was wrong in my teaching on on mary so i said sure so we went to a local denny's and the two of them were on one side of the booth i was on my side i had my bible open they had their bibles open and so they started by saying well you're teaching things that are not in the bible i said like what and so they gave me a marian doctrine and so i flipped open my bible and i started quoting scripture in response to that issue and then they said no no no, no. you're taking that out of context and you're misunderstanding it and i said no i'm not you are and they said, we're not misunderstanding it. You are. I said, no, I understand it. You misunderstand it. So it was somewhat for effect, but it was like, a, a, for them, it was like a dog chasing its tail. And so for the next hour, we went through this back and forth and I would quote scripture and they would say that that's not what it means. And I'd say, no, what you're thinking is not what it means. And so it was a very frustrating hour for all of us. And by the end of the time, <clears throat> I don't know where this thought came from, but I had this bright idea. <clears throat> I took my my pen out and on the napkin, I wrote, I never said you stole money. And I turned it around in front of the two guys, one of whom was an ex-Catholic, by the way. And I said, do you know what I mean by this sentence? I never said you stole money. Sure. Yeah, we understand. And I said, are you sure you understand what I meant? Yeah, we understand. What's your point? I said one more time for effect. Are you sure you know what I mean by this? And they said, yes. What's your point? And I said, all right, well, did I mean... I never said you stole money, but by implication, somebody else said it. Or did I mean, I never said you stole money? I thought it, but I never said it. Or did I mean, I never said you stole money, implying that somebody else did. Or I never said you stole money. Maybe you did something, maybe you lost it. I don't know, but I never said you stole it. Or did I mean, I never said you stole money. Maybe you stole my hat or my bicycle. So I asked the two guys, I said, okay, now I wrote six small words in our common language in your presence. You saw me write them down. You understand what these words mean. But can you tell me with certitude what I intended by this six-word sentence that has five different meanings? And each of these five different meanings is different from the other ones. Mm -hmm. Which one did I mean? And they looked at each other and they looked at me and I could see the light bulbs go off and they just, they're like, well all right, I guess we don't really know what you meant. So then I said, so guys, tell me this then. You're insisting that you know exactly what all of these passages mean, and you're certain that I can't know what they mean because I'm a Catholic, and yet you can't tell me what I meant by six words written on a napkin? Mm -hmm. And it was there that the conversation sort of ground to a halt because I was trying to get them to see what your, what your argument is based on is that you don't agree with my interpretation and vice versa, but that's different from saying that you're not going by the Bible or I'm not going by the Bible. Well, happy ending. Six months went by and uh, the, the former Catholic guy, he shows up at another event of mine and he says, do you remember me? I said, yeah. 
He says, do you remember that napkin thing you did when we were sitting at Denny's that night? I said, I remember. And he says, well, that itself didn't, you know, convince me. But he said it was like a key that unlocked the door of my mind. I was so firmly convinced that the Catholic Church couldn't be right about any of these matters. But when I realized what you pointed out, he says, you know, that makes sense. So he said he started to read the church fathers to see what they thought about these issues. And he that was all she wrote. So he says, once I did that, I realized I made a big mistake. And he says he came back to the Catholic Church. So little techniques wow. like that can be helpful. Praise God. That's great. Praise God. Um, I, I think it was you also, Patrick, who, and I could be wrong, but I think it's you who had another great example that I liked. And it was, um, you use the analogy of put the kitty on the table. And then you ask somebody, what does that mean? And they said, well, it's obvious you put the cat on the table. And you're like, yes, unless, of course, you're playing poker, then it's a different type of kitty. But the, diff the, the thing is, you can't tell just by looking at the words on the page what the author who wrote that meant. Was that you? Uh, I've heard that said before, but that did not originate with me. Okay. Uh, that, that would be an example of uh, equivocation. So the use of a word in a way that's different. I mean, the same word could be used in multiple ways. One that I find rather amusing is time flies like the wind, fruit flies like bananas. And if you just look at it or hear it, it just doesn't make any sense. But in this case, the word flies is being used in two different ways. One is a noun and one is a verb. Um, and so what, one of the dangers, of course, is, for all of us, not just Protestants who believe in Sola Scriptura, is the tendency to eisegete or to in, interpolate into the text things we want to see there when, in fact, they may not be there. And I realize we're just about out of time now. So um, did you have any other comment or, or um, verse you wanted to touch on briefly? Um, maybe you could... Uh... Maybe you could end with uh, just some of the Catholic verses that we might bring up. Um, I know there was one more verse, 1 Corinthians 4, 6, which don't... Uh, Do not don't go, go beyond what is written. Yeah. Yeah, you want to touch on that one real quickly? Yeah, why don't we touch uh, okay. on that? Okay, sure. So in 1 Corinthians, we have a situation where St. Paul says, Do not go beyond what is written. So it reads in verse 6, I have applied this to myself. I have applied all this to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brethren that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Okay. So again, at first glance, if that was all we saw, uh, it might be persuasive in the direction of Sola Scriptura. But first of all, it, it would fly in the face of everything that St. Paul said otherwise. So for uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2, uh, I praise you, brothers, because you remember me in everything, and hold fast to the traditions just as I handed them on to you. Those were all oral traditions. He was writing about that in 1 Corinthians. He had not yet written any scriptural epistle to them. So here, how could he praise them for adhering to unwritten tradition, the gospel before it was written down, and then at the same time say, yeah, but forget all that. Only pay attention to anything I wrote. If I, if I wrote it, pay attention to that. If I didn't write it, don't worry about it. Completely contradictory. Mm -hmm. as it would be for 2 Thessalonians 2.15. And there are enough of those Pauline examples that we, I think we can make short shrift out of this one. In context, what he's talking about is judgment. So in verse 1, he says, uh, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And he goes on to talk about being judged. He says, I don't care if you judge me. He says, I don't even judge myself. He says, I am not aware of anything against myself 
but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time when the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then every man will receive his commendation from God. Now, when you see that unfolding in the book of Revelation, what are we told? We're told that the books are opened, that the book of life is open, and, and the judgment involves those people whose names are not written in the book of life. So in context, St. Paul is speaking here about judgment, and he's referring obliquely to what is written in the judgment book, you know, the book of life. He is not saying anything whatsoever about go by scripture alone, as his later comments on tradition, uh, I think, amply demonstrate. Yeah. And even, even one other thing, that even if he were saying that, well, then you would he would be involving himself in an impossibility because then if you can only go by what is written, how do you know which books belong in the Bible? Because what is written in the new Testament nowhere tells you. So it, it's a, it's a close, it, it's like a hamster wheel. I mean, you can never get out of that. And it certainly is contradictory to what scripture teaches as a whole. And it always leads back to the authority of the church and the necessity of the church as well to go alongside scripture. Right. Right. Um, that's great. Thank you so much, Patrick. Uh, do you have any You're closing, welcome. do you have any closing have, thoughts on, go ahead. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, I was just going to say if, uh, if you had any closing thoughts or anything you wanted to say regarding solar scripture or tradition or anything on that idea. I have written uh, quite a bit on the topic and a number of my articles and essays are including a couple of debates that I had with a uh, Calvinist, uh, apologist. Uh, are available for free on my website, which is patrickmadrid.com. And under the article section, you'll find them all there and on many other topics as well, Mary and other topics. Uh, but those are all free in PDF form. Uh, some of the debates that I've been in over the years, I, I never pursue debates and I never try to organize debates. But from time to time, I've, I've accepted invitations to do debates. And a number of those are available as digital downloads as well for people who might like to listen. The website is patrickmadrid.com. And then lastly, with regard to Sola Scriptura, um, I do the daily radio program that you mentioned, which is the Patrick Madrid Show. It's three hours a day on relevant radio. Uh, I'm on about 190 stations around the country. Uh, but for those who are listening in an area where we don't yet have a station, we have the free relevant radio app in the App Store or on Google Play. And uh, it's, it's absolutely free. And you can listen not only to my show and the other shows live, but you can also listen to the podcast at any time that you want. And I reference my show on relevant radio because I get into a lot of apologetics, a great deal of what I do. I don't have guests. I don't do interviews. I, I do phone calls and commentary. And so we get lots of Protestants. Yesterday I had two atheists call. So it's a very, very wide and, and eclectic audience, uh, national audience. And so people who are interested in more on this topic or similar topics they're going to get a big heaping helping by listening to the Patrick Madrid show. Thank you. And I would encourage all of our uh, viewers and, or if you're listening on a podcast to check out uh, Patrick Madrid's website, I'm going to link all of his uh, website, his books, you know, everything down below his radio show uh, and that eight hour debate, which I really love. Uh, but check out his books, actually read his books, go buy them. And I don't say this for many or any of our other interviewers, but I'm, I'm firmly convinced that uh, Mr. Madrid has some of the best apologetics books, practical apologetics. Like if you read them, then you can go use them. For example, if you look at uh, 
where is that in the Bible? Or where is that in tradition? People are always like, you guys have your traditions. Where is that found? And these will help you answer a lot of those questions. He also has pocket-sized uh, apologetics advice and tips and tricks and that sort of thing. And one of my favorite books written is uh, Pope Fiction, uh, t answering, I think, 20 uh, misconceptions and myths about the papacy. 30. Thank you. I sold you short. 30 myths and misconceptions about the papacy. And I believe he has a CD set on that too on his website. So please go check out his website and go check out these books. Invest in them. I definitely believe in them myself. And I'm not just saying that. I've, I've read them. I've read a lot of them. Thank you, Brian. And by the way, uh, good news. Uh, one of my books, in fact, that book, uh, where is that in the Bible? We have a new Spanish language edition of that book. And that's, right. uh, that's available now at patrickmadrid.com for those who speak Spanish or prefer to uh, read the books in Spanish. That's available now as well. So thanks for your kind words about my books. I appreciate that. You're very welcome. And uh, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. And thank you all for joining us as well. Please check out our show notes down below, our Facebook, our Instagram, our podcast, and uh, consider supporting us on Patreon. Thank you all. Pray for us. We are always praying for you. God bless you.